that song, uh, I think it's Sovereign is the title that we just sang. Uh, you know, my only beef with that song is that I wish, I wish they would have included somewhere in one of the lines something about uh, God's Word as the means by which we uh, trust Him. Um, and I say that for personal reasons because that was my experience. One of the first things I learned, uh, thankfully, was about God's sovereignty, that He is in control of everything. And uh, I wanted that. I didn't want to be in control anymore because I knew that I, I wasn't doing a good job of that, nor could I ever do a good job with that, with my own life. Uh, so His Lordship, His sovereignty was a comforting thing to me. Uh, but it was comforting because I knew that he was not silent. That was not something I needed to guess at, that he had provided for me in his word everything that I needed uh, to trust him. And so, like I said, that's just my only uh, real personal beef with that. But I bring that up because I believe it's a good segue into this, uh, back into our series, Spy the Lie. When I committed to follow Christ, the one thing, and I'll never forget it, I was in college, and uh, the one thing I, I said to myself that I was going to do is that I was going to trust and I was going to obey every, every single thing that this book said. It didn't matter what it was. And at the time, I, did, I didn't know what it said, or I, I knew very little about what it said. But I knew coming from a, a, a Christianese background that a lot of what I had been taught was... Uh, was not exactly correct. And so uh, in doing that, and as we've done that now for 20 plus years, uh, we've seen some of the trouble that gets us into uh, because as we open the, uh, God's Word together every week and uh, as we endeavor to do just that, I've kind of taken you on my journey, and that is to just obey every single thing that we find there. Uh, we find that it doesn't... Uh, it doesn't square with the, how the world's uh, version of Christianity would like it to be. And uh, that's okay, right? Because we're not here to, uh, to please anyone in the world. And uh, our goal is, uh, of course, also not to uh, be popular in this world or conquer uh, in this life, but to, uh, to be obedient so that we can get uh, to the next life. And part of that then means uh, spying, as I say here, these lies, or as I've been talking about each week, and we've been uh, discussing uh, various different lies that were uh, probably uh, taught to us at one time or another if we've come out of, like I said, a Christianese uh, background. Uh, that at least has been uh, my focus in coming up with these, uh, these different uh, lies. And so uh, we'll continue that here uh, with number four today. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and uh, pray and ask the Lord's blessing in our time, shall we? Father, thank you that you are indeed sovereign over your people's lives, and that should give us great comfort because uh, we know, as your word says, Romans 8, that uh, you cause all things to work for the good of those that love you. And uh, that's part of your covenant love, Deuteronomy 7, 9, part of your covenant love to us, that those who love you and keep your commandments, that uh, you show to them your faithfulness, uh, you give them that comfort of your steadfast 
uh, love. And uh, we're thankful for that, which means, again, that uh, you cause all things, even the bad things, even the difficult things, to work uh, in our favor to achieving our ultimate goal of being uh, in eternity with you forever. Thank you that we have time again to open your word and to learn again uh, what it is that your word says to uh, put away these various lies. I know that as a, a pastor, part of my job, according to the pastoral epistles, is to uh, do away with the wives' tales that exist in the church, have always existed uh, in the church. And uh, so I pray as we do that here today, as we uh, we get rid of or do away with another wives' tale that exists in the church, uh, most especially today, that you would be pleased uh, with that and pleased to equip us with what it is that your word says. Make it so we pray in Jesus, our King's name. Amen. Okay, if you will, direct your eyes to the uh, the top of the worksheet there, the handout. Safely navigating our souls to the shores of heaven requires we spy the lies that lead to shipwreck and the truth those lies often conceal. Quick review, number one, the first lie that we looked at, you don't have what it takes to live for God and get to heaven. As my brother prayed, uh, we can be faithful. We know that uh, because of uh, passages uh, like Deuteronomy 30, as well as uh, 2 Peter 1.3, we have everything we need for life and godliness. Number two, the devil poses no threat to the Christian. Well, according to 1 Peter 5.8, uh, that too is not true. This is no, as my brother Andy has said, no empty threat. He is uh, constantly watching God's flock, looking for those that he might devour. Number three, what we discussed last week, the consensus of pagans, our thoughts, our spiritual beliefs, and our feelings are all things we can trust when attempting to discern truth. Again, another lie. According to Jesus and his high priestly prayer in John 17, 17, truth originates not in us, but outside of us in God's word. Which is why when attempting to discern or disseminate truth to others, we must not allow ourselves to listen to the majority. And that includes family and friends or our internal thoughts or feelings, or even our long-held spiritual beliefs. Instead, we must be constantly taking ourselves and others back to the Scriptures, asking the question, what does the Word of God say? And this is uh, what Paul is talking about in places like 2 Corinthians 10.5, when he says we're taking all thoughts captive to obey Jesus all thoughts captive to obey Jesus. Or Isaiah 8.20, to the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this, it's because they have no dawn. They're in darkness. An example of this would be uh, in relation to what we just prayed for, and that is uh, those who have been uh, faithful and being salt and light to their parents, their family, and they've, uh, they've gone through some persecution uh, because of that. Uh, well, as I was thinking about that, uh, 
there in the back, I, what came to mind was, uh, you know, in asking this question, what does God say about that? Well, of course, Matthew 5 uh, speaks to that very issue about being salt and light. And uh, it's no coincidence that uh, those particular verses in Matthew 5, you are the salt of the earth, verse 13, verse 14, you are the light of the world. It's no coincidence that those two verses come uh, right after what he says in verses 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. So they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. So there it is. See, there's, uh, that's all connected there. Uh, when you are salt when you are light to this world, which refers to our testimony in relation to God's word. Well, we will be persecuted for that. We know there are other passages that speak to this. Second Timothy 3.12 talks about how, or promises that we will be persecuted. Philippians 1, verse 27, something like that. 29, maybe you've been called not only to uh, believe upon him, but also to uh, suffer, right? And in Matthew 10, uh, Jesus uh, is real specific about where the majority of that uh, tension or that persecution is going to come from. Verse 16, Behold, I'm sending you out a sheep in the midst of wolves. Sheep in the midst of wolves and uh, where he was sending them the prior verses 1 through 15 is uh, into, their, into their villages where their family and their friends lived. And uh, he says, uh, here's what's going to happen. Verse 21, brother will deliver brother over to death and father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Do not fear them, verse 26, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Here is the, uh, the idea of being the light, right? You're going to see that it's revealed. Hence, verse 27, what I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the rooftops or the housetops. Comforting words, verse 28, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your Father. Even the hairs of your head are all numbered. God cares for us when we do these things. He's with us in it, protecting us, caring for us. And Jesus uses all of that to then say, verse 32, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. So this is the, one of the ways that we do that is through this uh, salt and light uh, witnessing to family, to friends that brings persecution. Jesus says, this is how you acknowledge me. And uh, then you have the antithesis of that, verse 33, but who de- whoever denies me before men, which means a uh, person who refuses to do that, right? Doesn't want the tension maybe be- with family, puts family before Jesus, which Luke 14, Jesus has a lot to say about that there. 
He says, you can't even be my disciple if that's the case. And then verse 34, he really drives it home as it relates to the uh, family issue. Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. Where specifically? Verse 35, for I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever therefore loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And so just a a good example, I think, of uh, what this point uh, is uh, referring to or what I'm referring to rather by this point uh, that... uh, We are to train our minds to go back to God's word, not trusting our own thoughts or even our own spiritual beliefs, no matter how true those beliefs might be or accurate those beliefs might be. We need to always constantly be asking ourselves the question, what does God's word say? And bringing ourselves back to God's word. By the way, that's a great way to learn your Bible. So many of you say, well, I, I don't know where things are. I know it says it somewhere. When we first started, I had this uh, older gal that used to say that all the time to me. Uh, well, I know it's somewhere. And uh, I don't think there was ever a time that she said that, that she was ever right. She'd say something, and it was what she believed. Uh, and she, I'd say, well, where is that? In God's word, and she'd say, well, it's somewhere, and I'd say, well, please, you need to tell me, or you need to show me, because I I don't know anywhere that it says that. And so this is the danger, right, of thinking, well, I learned that in church or whatever, but where is that at in the Bible, right? That is our authority, the Bible, which leads us then to uh, this this fourth lie. The Bible is your only spiritual authority. So uh, nuanced, we we just talked about that the Bible is our authority, but that doesn't mean it's our only authority. And uh, here I'm talking about spiritual authority. It's not our only spiritual authority, but uh, there are a lot, I would say, today who uh, believe that. A lot of churches uh, would, uh, in the way they preach or the way they practice their quote-unquote Christianity, uh, practice this. What I call here, uh, or what has been uh, coined as solo scriptura. Solo scriptura. This is heresy, false teaching, meaning that the Bible itself, God's Word doesn't tell you that the Bible only is to be your only spiritual authority. And as I said, uh, this nonetheless is what's popular today. And uh, people really pride themselves on that. And the Bible, that's it. That's the only authority uh, for me. Who says? Your Bible? Your only authority? Well, if you go to the Bible, the Bible tells you that it's not to be your only authority. Pretty ironic. Many claiming to be Christians today have embraced uh, its more heretical cousin, solo novus testamentum, meaning this, the New Testament is my only authority. And I would say that based on the preaching of, uh, again, most churches, this is true, 
The only thing they ever preach out of is the, uh, the New Testament. The only thing they ever use for support is the New Testament. This has traditionally been referred to as a canon within a canon. We call the Bible a canon. Canon just means a rule. We say that this is a 66 books make up the canon. They are canonical books of the Protestant Bible, Old Testament, New Testament. That in contrast to what Roman Catholics hold to, which is also the Apocrypha, which is in the middle between the Old and New 66 books, we believe that this is the completed canon of Scripture. The rule for all life and godliness is found here in its pages. Well, to say that uh, your only authority is the New Testament, and there's various ways that people say this, and we're going to see one example here in just a second, but uh, to do that is really to have a canon within a canon. You go to any of these churches' websites uh, that would do this, and they'll all say that all 66 books make up the Word of God. But as far as authority goes over your life, it's only the New Testament. Which means that the canon, the rule, only extends as far as the New Testament. The other two-thirds of their Bible, which is the Old Testament, is just kind of there for, I don't know, I guess if you get bored and you need something else to read. Or for good stories, maybe, or uh, references, but references without a authority. And so a canon uh, within a canon. What you deem as God's canon or authoritative rules does not include the entirety of God's canon or all 66 books, but instead only the New Testament. Popular evangelical pastor, son of uh, Charles Stanley, Andy Stanley, states that the Old Testament should not be seen as the go-to source regarding any behavior in the church, unquote. Any behavior in the church. In his view, the apostles, and I quote, unhitched the church from the worldview, value system, and regulations of the Jewish scriptures, end quote. And what Stanley and those embracing this heresy don't realize is that this was the position of one of church's most infamous heretics, Marcion, who believe that the Old Testament and any teaching in the New Testament that requires obedience or threatens punishment to those who disobey to be the corruption of a vindictive evil deity, a demiurge, he called him, that has nothing in common with the all-loving and forgiving Jesus. Lots of Marcionites running around today claiming to be Christians. And uh, when I say that this individual was a was a heretic, uh, just go back and read church history. You'll find uh, unanimity on this particular point. Everybody knows, and uh, he was ruled by the churches to be just that, a heretic. And yet today, Marcionites are accepted everywhere. I lived in a house with a bunch of guys on U of M's campus, and uh, these guys claim to be Christians, and uh, some of those people would say this. They would say, I don't want to know all of that scripture, most especially the Old Testament. I just want to know Jesus. And other version of Jesus was always just Jesus as, you know, the forgiving guy. The gentle Jesus, right? The limp-wristed, effeminate Jesus that doesn't really exist in Scripture. Why it is impossible to have Jesus and deny or ignore the teaching and requirements of the Old Testament or the law? Well, because Jesus affirmed its continuing authority and necessity for getting to heaven. 
Now, we've got a lot that we're going to get through here today, and uh, we just don't have time to go through everything. So a lot of this I, I'm going to paraphrase or, or, or quote for you. This is one that you know, but I would highly encourage you to go back and to make sure, especially if you're not familiar with these texts, to make sure that you look at them so that you know uh, that I'm not teaching you something that's not there uh, in the text itself. Well, Matthew 5 is the beginning of Jesus' uh, 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 Sermon on the Mount address, and uh, there he makes it very clear. Actually, right after the portion on the salt and light, he then goes into telling them exactly what his position is on the law, uh, which was expected because uh, they expected or they were uh, looking at him at that particular point, especially going up on a mount or on a mountain. Uh, they were expecting him or hoping that he was uh, the, the prophesied Moses to come, the new Moses. And uh, we know that Moses himself went up on a mountain and came down with the law. And so Jesus, the first thing he uh, formally addresses is this issue, which they would have again been expecting him to do. The issue as it relates to the law, because uh, Moses made it very clear in both Deuteronomy 13 as well as Deuteronomy 18 that uh, this one that would come that would be like him, a prophet like him, would not do away with the law, but would see to it that it was enforced in its entirety. And so Jesus uh, says what? Do not think that I came to abolish the law. Not one jot or tittle shall be removed until heaven and earth pass away. Until heaven and earth pass away. Last time I checked, we're... Heaven and earth are still here. Not one jot or tittle shall be removed. And, and I came, play ra'o, to see that it's fulfilled. Very uh, unfortunate translation done by evangelicals. I hate to say it that way because it sounds like I'm creating conspiracy here. I'm not. It's true. You look up the boards of those who did the uh, translation work in both the ESV as well as the NES. And uh, they are evangelicals. And so uh, that term, play ra'o, don't take my word for it. This would... Uh, require you to do a little more uh, digging in the uh, the original language. Plerao is the term in the Greek. Literally, Jesus says, I came to see that it be fulfilled. Not I came to fulfill it in the sense that he's going to do it for us. Besides, that doesn't make sense with the rest of what is said because then in verse 19, Jesus says, anyone who removes even the smallest portion will be considered a nobody, the least, a zero, meaning you're not going to heaven in heaven. Why is he talking about our need to fulfill it or to teach it if he's going to do it for us? You see, that makes no sense within the context itself. And then by verse 20, he says, if your righteousness, practicing of righteousness, that term righteousness I told you in a Q&A several weeks or months ago, uh, that that term for the Jews referred to uh, the practical outworking or practicing of the law, most especially as it relates to that second table of the law, that which we do in relation to one another. The, the, the do not lie, the do not covet, adultery, etc., etc. And so uh, he says there, if it doesn't exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, if your righteousness does not exceed, again, of the same context, in relation to the law, if it does not exceed that, you will not get into heaven. And for the scribes and the Pharisees, these were not uh, nitpicking, uh, careful keepers of the law, as we often hear. All you have to do, again, is just read your Bible. Because Jesus doesn't condemn them for that. It's just the opposite. He says, you act as though you keep the law, but in reality, you are just the opposite. You're workers of lawlessness, filled with iniquity, Matthew chapter 23. And so, uh, to exceed it means that you're going to be a person who is not like them, who says you keep the law. Really, you're just an easy believism type of person, which was true of them, that Jesus makes clear in places like John 8. 
where they say to him, well, we're the children of Abraham, so we're okay. And Jesus says, if you're the children of Abraham, do the deeds of Abraham. There again, the issue is what you practice. And so uh, Jesus makes it clear that you need to be better than that if you're going to get to heaven. You need to be one who observes the law. Hence the reason in Matthew chapter 19, uh, when the rich young ruler, a Jewish individual already in covenant with God, comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus doesn't say, just say a prayer. Believe in me. What does he say? You know the commandments. Keep the commandments. Keep, another word for faithfulness, used many times over, both in the Old and the New Testament. That's verses 16 through 23. If that wasn't true, why did Jesus say that? I mean, really, a horrible joke if that's not really what we're supposed to do. Here this man comes and asks the question very sincerely, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This man's already in covenant relationship with God. What does he need to do? He needs to maintain that relationship through what? Faithful observance of the law. There was one particular law that he was lacking in, and that was in uh, taking care of uh, the poor within the covenant community, something that's commanded in the Old Testament to do. And so Jesus says, you need to go do that. He doesn't do it. Similar individual to this individual who did do it in Luke 19, Zacchaeus. Jesus essentially tells him exactly the same thing, in this, or, or this man rather, the other way around. This man comes to Jesus and offers to do that very thing. And Jesus says, salvation has come to this man's house. Right? So again, the law. All of this packed back into point four three. Why it is impossible to have Jesus and deny or ignore the teaching of the requirements of the law? Because Jesus affirmed it. And says you can't get to heaven without it. Why it is impossible for the Bible then... Now that we've established what the Bible is, what the canon includes, both the old and the new, why it's impossible for the Bible to be your only spiritual authority, the solo scriptura position. Only this book, that's the only thing I listen to, is this book. Because the Bible, and when I say the Bible, I mean God's written word, is not self-explanatory. Understanding the meaning or message being communicated through its words has always required the interpretive efforts and skill of human beings. Right? Last time I checked, there's, I don't know if my Bible and I'm reading, it's like, and then there's like this, this voice that comes and it's like, no, 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 you get it all wrong, stupid. It means this, right? It doesn't happen. So to say, well, this is my, my only authority, okay, but, 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 but who, who does the work of interpreting this? Well, it's always required that. It's always required uh, interpretive effort or skill to interpret it. Nehemiah chapter 8. Turn back to the historical books there at the very end before you go into the books of wisdom. Ezra and Nehemiah. So if you're in the Psalms about the middle there, go back uh, to the historical books in Ezra there. This is uh, after the Babylonian exile. <clears throat> They're starting slowly to come back into the land to rebuild the temple. They find the book of the law. Ezra was a priest. And uh, here's what we read in uh, Nehemiah 8. I did say Nehemiah, didn't I? I did? Okay, uh, yeah. Because there is a book called Ezra. I was in it. You weren't. <laughs> Nehemiah 8. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe, 
to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. This is why, by the way, we have children. We don't excuse children to go off into some room and waste their time. Um, if you can understand, you need to be here to hear, to listen. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday. You think our services are long? In the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. So pulpit. And beside him stood uh, Mattathias, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Masasiah on his right hand and Padiah, Mishael, Makaha, I don't know. I don't know, I don't, Zechariah, Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and he opened it all, uh, and he opened it all, as he opened it all, the people stood, and Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And then you got a whole list of names. Again, another list of names, important to understand why these names are being listed. They are the Levites, notice right after the name, who are part of that priestly caste, the Levites. You have the priests and you have the Levites. The distinction, the Levites uh, or the priests were the anointed among the, uh, the Levites. Help the people. Notice what they did. Here's the point. Notice what they did. They're, they're reading the law and they're helping the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places, they read from the book of the law clearly, and they gave the sense so the people understood the reading. Verse 13, skip down there. On the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study again the words of the law. So, and, and that word study literally gained insight. Individuals doing that for the people. Not just people running off and uh, uh, determining whatever they thought that it was saying and that's what they would choose to do. Instead, there were individuals helping them to do that. In this case, and uh, keep this in mind, we're going to come back to this here in a little bit, but uh, the priests or the Levites were the ones uh, doing that. Uh, Luke chapter 24, verse uh, 27, this was true even uh, in Jesus' day and uh, even among his uh, disciples who again were uh, Hebrews or Jews and uh, they had been raised on God's word and uh, yet they needed someone to help them to understand. Hence the reason in Luke 24, 27 we read, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, the Old Testament, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. It is not interpreting itself. That's the, that's the takeaway here. Do you get it? So when someone says something like that, oh, I don't need it. Well, who does the interpretive work? These people needed it. You don't. You're better than the apostles, I take it. Or Jews who were living in the time that it was, that it was being written. Hence the reason in places like Acts 2.42, it says that the people were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. This is especially true given the thousands of years that separate us, meaning today, from its original audience whose culture, custom, political, and social climate, common cliches and figures of speech are completely foreign to us. I'll give you some examples. The first one comes from Ephesians 1.4. There you have 
these words about our salvation, that, uh, that we've been chosen to be holy and blameless. This is what God expects from us, that we would be holy and blameless. He chose us uh, to not just be saved and do whatever we want, but that we would go and that we would live holy and blameless lives. Well, how are we to understand those two terms? By how they make me feel? By what the, the, the current culture or how the current culture understands those terms? Well, uh, if you know anything about uh, uh, Jewish tradition, then you understand that the, these two terms were very, 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 very pregnant terms. When a Jew heard uh, holy or blameless, they, uh, they knew that those uh, terms were referring to two things. Holy was a, a reference to the intolerance of sin. To be holy means you, you don't tolerate sin. And uh, uh, the term blameless, uh, faithful observance of God's moral requirements. That's what blameless refers to. And so you see that in various places in the New Testament, that's what you should be thinking of, blameless. Well, if you don't know that, right? If you're not trained to understand that, then what are the chances you're going to get that out of just reading your Bible without someone to help you with that? Revelation uh, chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, this is uh, where John, or in chapter 4, he's taken up into heaven after his message to the, to the seven churches, and then uh, he, we're told that, or he tells us rather, that he's taken up into the throne room, throne room of God, and uh, there, uh, as part of the, the, this uh, throne room vision, uh, John sees one sitting on a throne who is, has a scroll in his hand, and this scroll, we're told, is, uh, is sealed with seven seals. And those seals are going to be uh, broken as the book uh, continues through chapter 18. Uh, you have the breaking of the seals and uh, uh, what follows each of these uh, through its uh, visionary or prophetic language or all these various different catastrophes. And then those seals become trumpets and then, uh, uh, then we have a, a, a recapitulation. We have a redoing of the whole thing again a second time around by chapter uh, 13. This time it's in the bowls, seven bowls. Uh, but it all goes back to uh, this, this document, which means this is the key to really understanding everything that happens or that follows after that through verse uh, 18, or excuse me, chapter 18. Well, again, how do, I, how do I read that unless I have some training or understanding as it relates to these kinds of things, ancient things, Jewish things? Well, this particular document, sealed with seven seals, is what was called a get mekashur, a get mekashur. It was a bill of divorce uh, that was created after, or during, rather, the Babylonian exile, uh, specifically for the priests. Because you may remember, and you may not, according to Leviticus, a priest was not allowed to marry a divorced woman. And so, at the time, there was some concern that the priests were too easily divorcing their wives. They would get angry at them for something, and they would divorce them. And so, to, to keep the priests from being expedient about things like this, what they did is they created a specific document, a divorce document, for the priests. And that particular document was folded or sealed seven times over with seven different witnesses. 
And the purpose of that was to slow down the process to give them time to, to, to cool down and to think through what they were doing before they did it. And so this particular document, this Get Mekasher, was a specific kind of bill of divorce. It was a bill of divorce that was issued or given only to priests in relation to their wives, those that wanted to divorce them. And so that's what we're seeing here uh, in Revelation 5, which tells us a ton about what's going on and how we should then uh, be uh, interpreting or understanding the rest of the prophetic vision that follows thereafter. Jesus being the high priest. Jesus in marriage covenant relationship with old covenant Israel. Jesus, who in the past has sent the second member of the Godhead, the one speaking throughout the Old Testament, the one that leads Israel, according to Jude 1.5, uh, through the desert, through the wilderness. This Jesus who sent prophet after prophet after prophet to the people, warning them of this very thing, if they didn't stop. These prophets who spoke words like, you whoring wife, because of their unfaithfulness, because of their easy believism, because they were listening to the false prophets who said, peace, peace, where there was no peace. And finally, they get to the point to where no more. They've killed the final prophet, and that prophet was their husband, Jesus himself. So here in Revelation 5, we have Jesus now finalizing the divorce that's been threatened for so, so very long. And so we're told then, or we now understand then, how it is that we are to uh, interpret the rest of what follows. Again, uh, without that kind of understanding or training, what are the chances we're going to get it? Me in my living room reading my Bible. Reading the the book of Revelation. And by the way, uh, Leviticus 26, 27, and 28, uh, Jesus, God there speaking, but we know again that to be the second member of the Godhead, Jesus, the covenant-making God of the Bible, he's the one speaking there, and he threatens this very thing. If you continue in disobedience to me, there will be a seven-fold punishment. Hence the reason in that prophetic vision it's seven every time. Since the Bible was written then, God has mandated the following. God has mandated that the work of interpretation be done by certain men in the covenant community versus each person interpreting it for themselves. Uh, Judges chapter uh, 17 and uh, 21, I think 18 and 19, uh, verses uh, 1 of 18 and 19 also Speak this way, it says that everyone at that particular time was walking according to their own law or was doing what was right in their own eyes. What's really, really interesting about that is uh, the, the Hebrew construction there. Uh, this is solo scriptura. That's, that's what it's saying. It's not talking about people who are, uh, who are completely um, detaching themselves from God's law. What it's talking about there is people who are determining that they will be the ones who interpret what God's law says and what they need to follow. And so that understanding there in Judges is, is this idea of solo scriptura, which of course in Judges is condemned over and over. People uh, really taking the law into their own hands, meaning God's law, and saying, I- I'll determine what it means. And again, that's not what God has ever mandated. 
Hence the reason, again, for Nehemiah 8, with the priests doing the work of interpreting. And we see exactly the same thing under the New Covenant. This is why in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, uh, where we hear about the growth in the church, the disciples were increasing in number of complaint, but a Hellenist arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve being the apostles, some of the full number of disciples, and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word to serve tables. What do you do when you preach the word where you're interpreting it? Are you not? And so, uh, what is the twelve saying here? They're saying, look, uh, our time should not be spent in this very worthy and necessary ministry of providing for these particular widows. We need to give ourselves to the translation work. Therefore, pick among among yourselves seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit of wisdom, whom we may appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. What do you suppose the ministry of the word is? Well, it's this work of interpretation teaching people what God's word says and what it doesn't say. How to spy the lie, right? And so here we see exactly the same thing uh, being believed or adopted by the apostles. Men to do this kind of work. This is Ephesians chapter 4, 11 through 16, that Jesus gave to the church apostles and prophets and pastor teachers so that the congregation would not be tossed to and fro by every wind of teaching and doctrine. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 30, where Paul says, not everybody's been given the same gift, and to some, some have been given the gift of interpretation. Acts chapter 8, we have an example of this very thing. Acts chapter 8 doesn't mean that we don't read God's word. We read God's word. And that's what we find here with the, uh, this individual, this uh, Ethiopian eunuch who is in this uh, chariot. He's, he's come back. He's a, what we call, or they called a, a God-fearer. He'd gone down to worship uh, in Jerusalem. He's returning. And uh, he's seated in his chariot and he's reading. Verse 28 says, the prophet Isaiah Philip's told by the Spirit, this is one of, by the way, the the seven that was picked there back in Acts 6. Philip is one of these individuals who was made an elder in the church, a Levite in the church. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? He said, notice his words, leave me alone. It's me and my Bible. It'll mean to me whatever I want it to mean. Can't you see that it's a study Bible? He said, how can I unless someone guides me? Notice that. And no doubt the reason he says that to Philip is because Philip didn't just come up to him. There's some guy in the streets like, hey man, you know what you're reading? You're like, oh sure, come tell me. It's like, it's, it was, hey, here's who I am. I'm Philip. I'm an, I'm an elder in the Jerusalem church. And, uh, oh, oh, so you're qualified to do this. Come and help me understand So again, we see this in the New Testament just like we do in the Old. The pattern is there. The work of interpretation being done by certain men versus each person interpreting it for themselves, walking according to their own law, solo scriptor. These Bible teachers 
God has mandated that these Bible teachers be ordained. That's the, 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 the more uh, current term that we use today. Uh, and I think the reason why, don't quote me on this, but I think one of the reasons why uh, this term is used today versus anointed uh, is because that's kind of fallen in disrepute. It's used uh, more commonly in uh, Pentecostal or charismatic circles. And so to steer away from some of that, uh, the term that is used today is ordained, but the term that we see in the Bible is anointed. These Bible teachers be ordained or anointed, that's what I mean by anointed, to the office of priest after demonstrating their gifting or calling to this task through holy and blameless living and competency in their overall knowledge of the Bible, including understanding of its ancient context. And that is uh, what is required in an ordination council, at least in an old-fashioned ordination council like the one that I went through. Uh, it took me, I think it was uh, five hours and 19 minutes to get through mine. And uh, I had to demonstrate that. They asked me about my life, uh, what kind of a life I lived. They had my wife come up and uh, she had to testify to that. They asked the congregation. I was there for a year under their oversight. Uh, Thirteen pastors flew out here for that. But then I had to uh, demonstrate competency in my knowledge of the Bible, including uh, these ancient things, right? That the interpretation that I was giving to it was correct or accurate. Examples of this, Exodus 29, 7 through 9, there's where uh, God gives the command to uh, Moses as it relates to Aaron, his brother, and his sons. Uh, be set apart as uh, the priests, and they're to be anointed or ordained to the task. Malachi, uh, Malachi 2 is a text you, you can turn to, or I would encourage you to, uh, here talking about, again, the role of the priest in this regard. Which, by the way, this is, uh, and you should see the connection here, this is why the priests are the judges, too, because what we're judging people based on should be God's word. Well, who better than those that know it, know the law? Malachi chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, true instruction was in his mouth and no wrong was found on his lips. There's the holy and blameless life that God expects of uh, the priest, in this case the old covenant priest. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge. And notice here, and the people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. People should seek instruction from his mouth. Not go off and uh, read it and believe whatever they want. The people should seek instruction from his mouth. This is, God, this is what God has mandated. This is God's way. At Numbers uh, 27, again, an inter interesting text. Uh, Moses, uh, who, by the way, Moses, according to Psalm 19, as well as his successor, in uh, Joshua are considered to be priests. That's how God speaks of Moses in Psalm 99. I believe it's verse 6. Are priests unto me. And he, of course, fulfilled the role of priest. Exodus 24, he's uh, the one uh, slapping the, bloods on the, side of the blood on the side of the basin. He's doing the work of a priest. He teaches as a priest, etc., etc. But in Numbers 27, here we have uh, the importance of this position from God's perspective as a means to caring for his flock. Verse 16, let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation. That word, I've, I've told you this before, that word appoint, better word there would be anoint because that's literally the term that's being used both in the old and the new where you see this. We're going to see this in Titus 1, the same thing. 
anoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them who shall lead them out and bring them in that the congregation of the Lord may not be as a may, may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. Remember Jesus looked upon the congregation of Israel in his day and he said he found compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. They didn't have a, a man, at least a good man, one who would lead them and be faithful in this regard. But notice here, this is what God wants for his people. A shepherd. So the Lord said to Moses, take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit and lay your hand on him. Notice that, lay your hand on him. Make him stand before Eleazar the priest and all the congregation and you shall commission him in their sight. You shall invest him with some of your, your authority that all the congregation of Israel may obey. Skip down to verse 23. And he laid his hands on him and commissioned him as the Lord had directed through Moses. Now Jesus, of course, has fulfilled this uh, role in Moses uh, or the role that Moses and Joshua uh, take up in the Old Testament. He's fulfilled that. And yet you still have priests, verse 19, Eleazar the priest. The point not to miss here is uh, what it takes to be put into that position, this anointing, laying on of hands. Notice the connection there. Well, in 2 Timothy 1.6, this is the very thing that uh, uh, Paul makes mention of in relation to uh, Timothy, who was at uh, Ephesus, at the church at Ephesus. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying out of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Spirit. Also a part of the, what we read there back in Numbers 27. By the Holy Spirit, verse 14, who dwells within us. This is not talking about the indwelling spirit uh, as it relates to Acts 2, Pentecost, this is talking about anointing, different, empowering spirit for the purpose of interpretation, for leading God's people. We're going to see more about that here in just a second. But by that spirit who dwells in us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. What is the good deposit? Verse 13, the pattern of sound words. Pattern of sound words. The gospel, verse 8, share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. So again, there the connection, the laying out of hands, we see it. We see it also in Acts 8. After uh, Philip uh, baptizes people, they receive the indwelling spirit, uh, which was kit and caboodle with uh, baptism. Uh, but then uh, Peter and John show up, and uh, Peter and John are uh, interested in something else or something beyond that with a select group of people. And... Uh, and so they come and they lay their hands, verse 17, on certain ones and they receive the Holy Spirit. And the receiving of the Spirit there is uh, this uh, spirit for anointing or ordination for those who would lead this church in Samaria. Those who were left to lead, which is why uh, Simon uh, saw what they were given. These individuals were given power and we know that this was a particular individual who uh, had power in uh, that particular area, verse 9. Tells us that, and he wants that again. He wants now this new power or authority, and so he tries to buy it. But again, the laying out of hands for this very reason in the new, just as it was in the old. In Titus chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, appoint men over the churches there on the Isle of Crete. And that word there, again, instead of appoint, anoint. Paul speaks of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 
verses 1 through 16, and when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the spirit and of power. He's speaking about his anointing here, his teaching, but he's saying here that what I gave you came from the spirit so that your faith may not rest on the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or the rules of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen nor ear heard nor the heart of man imagine what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. He's speaking again about his anointing. He speaks about the exact same thing in Ephesians 4, this mystery that was given to him through this anointing to preach. We see the same thing in 1 Peter 1.12. Men speak, spoke about the things of Jesus, the mystery that angels long to look into by the Holy Spirit. This anointing, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. It revealed it to, or He, the Spirit that's in us, revealed that to us. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person who is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. He's saying essentially this, we needed that Spirit so that we could properly interpret God's thoughts. He's reasoning with them that way. He's saying, how are we to understand God's thoughts? Unless we have the Spirit of God, we have the Spirit of God, not the Spirit of this world. Verse 12, now we have received not the Spirit of the world. The we there, by the way, is not speaking about all the people. It's speaking only of the ministers. Paul and company. We have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. Interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. An actual person doesn't accept these things, the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. A spiritual person judges all things, but he himself is to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him, meaning this person, this spiritual person, who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we, Paul says, have the mind of Christ. Paul here is giving his credentials for why they should listen to him. We have the mind of Christ. We have the anointing. We can do this, what we're doing now. And you can believe it, that it comes from God. Paul speaks to this using the, uh, the term uh, anointing in his uh, second epistle to the Corinthians, chapter 1, verse uh, 21. He says this, And it is God who established us with you in Christ and has anointed us anointed us. So again, this is what God's mandated, both in the old as well as in the new. It's wonderful, isn't it? The consistency of God's word. You notice there in the notes, that word anoint is never used. Maybe you're thinking this, well, maybe this is referring again to the indwelling spirit that we see in Acts 2. It's never used that way, ever, ever in the Bible. Appoint or anoint is never used that way to refer to the indwelling spirit received by all believers. You say, well, I know there was an anointing this way for the, uh, the priests under the Old Testament. We saw that. Or at least I made mention to that. 
in Exodus 29, as well as uh, what we see in Numbers 27. Uh, but w- what about the new? And you're using this word priests. It's kind of scary to me. I, I, my family came out of Roman Catholicism, and we don't like that term. A priest is bad, right? Pastor good, priest bad. Well, again, if we let God's word do the teaching, rightly understood, of course, but priest is not a derogatory term, not at all. Isaiah chapter 68, or 66, you know the text, bear with me. 66, here uh, speaking, and I won't take the time because we don't have the time, but uh, you can trust me on this, and if not, look it up for yourselves and you'll see that I'm right. Uh, here at the very end of Isaiah, uh, he's speaking about the new covenant to come. And uh, he says, uh, the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and shall see my glory. He's talking about right there. Goying is that term nations. It means uh, ethnos, same thing, the pagans. To take those outside of Jerusalem, to gather all the nations, which should be your first uh, indication that it's talking about something to come beyond what was uh, given or required of Old Covenant Israel. This is a New Covenant Israel. The New Covenant to come. The time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and shall see my glory, and I will set a sign among them, and from them I will send survivors to the nations, those that have not heard my fame or seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the nations, and they shall bring all your brothers, meaning the Jews, from all the nations as an offering to the Lord. Skip down to verse 21 then, and some of them also I will take for notice. Priests, and for Levites, says the Lord. Some of them I will take for priests. Wait a minute, this is a... Talk about the new covenant. Yep. And some of them I will take for priests and Levites, which means there are priests, we should expect, to find priests and Levites in new covenant Israel. Well, connecting all of this, keep in mind what's been said here, the time is coming gathering all the nations, I will send you to declare the glory, and uh, I will uh, take from among you some to be priests and to be Levites, and uh, with that in mind, then go to the New Covenant or the New Testament and John 20. Jesus said to them again, this is after his resurrection, just before his ascension back to heaven, Jesus himself said he had the anointing of the Spirit in Luke 4, Uh, when he goes into the synagogue and he reads from Isaiah, and he said, these verses are being fulfilled and you're hearing, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And here now, in light of that, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Mind you, this is before Acts 2. Acts 2 happens after Jesus has ascended back to heaven. It happens on a Pentecost. This is just after Passover. So you've got 40 days in between there, 50 days total to Pentecost. Hence the reason it's called Pentecost. If you forgive the sins, here's what this particular Holy Spirit receiving will do. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold the forgiveness of any, it is withheld. Wow. I was talking about salvation. The power to grant salvation. See, I don't see salvation, I see forgiveness. What's the difference? Isn't it the same thing? How did they get that? Jesus gave it to them, received the Holy Spirit. Very different than the indwelling spirit of Acts 2. 
What is this? This is the anointing. Receive the Holy Spirit. Give it to the church. He, by the way, promised this back in Matthew chapter 16. He said he was going to do this. This is the binding and the loosing from Matthew 16. Upon this rock I will build my church. Gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And I will give to you the keys of the kingdom. Keys of the kingdom. You want to give it to heaven? You go through here. It's outpost on earth. And uh, that's the binding and loosing. Again, like it's always been. So here it's uh, uh, given to the church or breathed out to the church. Notice again the words here. Sent. I'm sending you. Holy Spirit, if you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven. With all that in mind, then turn over to Matthew 18, one final text, and we'll kind of put it all together. Matthew 28, 18, here now Jesus after saying that. This is uh, Matthew picking up uh, after chronolo- in the chronology, uh, after what uh, happens there uh, with the uh, apostles, there after Jesus' resurrection. This is uh, uh, on the mount. Jesus here is now ascending back to heaven, and uh, he says these words, All authority in heaven and earth have been given to me meaning all authority over all nations. I'm not just uh, the Lord of Israel or the King of Israel. I am the King of all nations. Philippians 2 tells us that, that he was exalted or upgraded to that position because of his obedience to the point of death. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. I'm with you always to the end of the age. Those three passages. Think about it. The time is coming to gather all the nations. And from then I will send, and from them I will send survivors. That's the Isaiah 66. John 20. What does Jesus say? I am sending you fulfillment. Matthew 28. Go into all the world. Nations. Fulfillment. Some of them I will take for priests. Isaiah 66, Jesus, John 20, received the Holy Spirit. Who received that kind of anointing? The priests. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold the forgiveness of any, it is withheld. That's the binding and loosing that takes place through baptizing and teaching them, Matthew 28. Baptism is how we cleanse someone for the forgiveness of their sins. It's very real, very powerful. We know that. The Bible teaches it that way. Hence the reason it can say in 1 Peter 3.21 that you are saved through baptism. This particular sacrament works in that way. So uh, these are the keys or the means by which we do the binding and the loosing, the forgiving. Teaching is uh, also among them. How we maintain that position once it's been gained. The means of salvation, 132. Psalm 132 uh, as it relates to uh, priests having this kind of authority or a uh, priest been, been, being given this uh, particular role. Psalm 132, God promises her priests, I will clothe with salvation. And her saints will shout for joy. People don't like that today. I guess they're not saints. Uh, you know, you hear this say, I, I don't want to believe anybody has authority. Well, somebody has authority. If it's not the church, though Jesus says it is, then who is it? Who has the authority to say that you're in or you're not in? 
And of course, people don't like that because it's the other part of it, right? You're not in, that they don't like. But who has that authority? You say, well, Jesus, but who has Jesus granted that to? How do you know? You? An experience that you had? 2 Corinthians chapter 3, a little harder to get, but if you get it, brain blows out, right? This is, this is one of those, these texts where if uh, you get it, it's just that. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says this, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, verse 1, or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? Are we beginning to commend ourselves? Do we need letters of recommendation? Are we legitimate ministers? That's his point. You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on your hearts to be known and read by all. You notice the footnote there. It says that your is the other option there. It's the better option. I think the NAS has it this way. You yourselves are the letter of recommendation written on your hearts to be known and read by all. What does that mean? Written on your hearts. What would be written on their hearts? Paul's saying, you, it'd be like me saying, you, you are the, you're questioning, let's say, my, my legitimacy as a minister. And I say, oh, okay. Well, uh, you're, how, how you, you should know is you're my letter of recommendation. You say, well, what do you mean? They say, well, it's written on your hearts. And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us. So now he's going to explain what he means by this. This letter written on hearts. Written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on the tablets of stone, but on the tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ to our God. What is he saying here? Well, he's saying what you have. Notice there, uh, you got the spirit, written with the spirit of the living God. When do you get the spirit? Only when you've been saved, right? And so Paul's essentially saying this, really clever. Uh, he's saying, okay, you're my letter of recommendation. Uh, you believe you're saved, don't you? You believe you have the Spirit, don't you? Well, I'm the one that baptized you. So uh, unless I have the ability to give that to you, you don't have it. Which means what? If you say you're saved, then I'm legit. Clever, right? But what has Paul done here? What has Paul said about ministers in the church? That they have no authority or they have authority? His whole argument rests on the fact that ministers have, if they're, legit, if they're legitimate, if they're legitimate, if they meet the qualifications, they have authority for binding and loosing. And so again, very consistent with what we see in the old. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, as it relates to teaching, watch yourself and your teaching very closely, for in so doing you will save not only yourself, but those who listen. Ephesians 4, 7 through 11, we talked about this already, the, the gifts that are given there just before it says that he gave pastors and teachers, etc., etc. It says that Christ gave these gifts. Some have called it gifted offices for anointing for this very purpose. And you say, well, uh, what about Christ's role as high priest? We, we, don't, uh, we, we already have a high priest. We, we don't need a priest. And you'll hear this from time to time. Uh, yeah, he is our high priest. He's absolutely our high priest. We don't need another high priest. This is one thing that the, uh, the reformers did get right in their uh, attempts to reform the Catholic Church. Hence the reason they called themselves reformers. Uh, their, their initial 
strategy was not to leave the Catholic Church, but to reform it. And their criticism was the fact that the Pope uh, refers to himself as the vicar of Christ or the replacement of Christ. There is no high priest but Christ. But the high priest has priests. And the high priest doesn't do the job of teaching. It has always been the priests. The high priest is the one who makes atonement on the day of atonement, Yom Kippur. It's the priests that do the teaching. And so uh, there's no uh, contradiction here. There's no problem here by the church still having priests. Well, what about Matthew 23 where Jesus says, uh, don't uh, call anybody teacher. Don't refer to anyone that way or as priest or rabbi. Does that mean that, uh, again, that those positions don't exist in the church anymore? Well, Jesus also says they're called no one father. Same text. So does that mean in that section where he's saying that, that he's saying that uh, uh, dads, you should tell your sons and daughters to never call you by that, otherwise they're sinning. Here again is solo scriptura. People sitting around and reading it and not thinking about what it's saying. Not trained to think, in most respects. What is Jesus talking about? He says right there in relation to Father, you have but one Father in heaven. Ultimate Father. High Father. High Teacher. Which gets into the issue of what it's really about. It's not solo scriptura, but Sola Scriptura, final authority. Our final authority is Jesus and His Word. But we still need help from Jesus' men, always been that way, those that He has equipped and anointed for that very purpose because He loves His church and He doesn't want His church to be without a shepherd, even though He is the great shepherd to which the under-shepherds also submit to. These ordained or anointed priests demonstrate their interpretations to be consistent with the entire counsel of God's written word. We have no canon within a canon. People refer to uh, Romans 10 quite often, verse 4. Christ is the end of the law for all of those who believe. Yes. But what portion of the law is he speaking of there? Because in Just three chapters later in Romans 13, verses 8 through 10, Paul is saying that the only way to fulfill loving one another is by fulfilling the Ten Commandments. He quotes it. Was Paul schizophrenic? We have to be able to reconcile that, right? Paul says about himself that he was free or innocent of the blood of all men because he preached to them the whole counsel of God's word. What, what whole counsel do you suppose that he was referring to when there was no New Testament? Only the old. 2 Timothy 2.15 says that the God's servant, his anointed pastor, priest, whatever term you want to call him, is to demonstrate that he can rightly divide the word of God, the word of truth. Deuteronomy 12, 32, that uh, not, nothing is to be added or taken away. It's a closed system, always has been. This is sola scriptura. The whole counsel. God's word is the final authority. means it's God's word interpreting God's word, not me just making it say whatever I want in my particular context, which means going back to places like holy and blameless. I don't get to, to, to give it new meaning. I say, what, is that, what are those terms always meant in God's Word? Which means going back to uh, the Old Testament. As I've told you many times, and uh, scholars have attempted to get at this 
uh, and I think the right now, uh, kind of the, the belief is it's, a, it's one out of every three or four verses is a direct allusion to the Old Testament. So that's how often you should be going back to the Old Testament to understand what you're reading in the New. Number four, the covenant community happily affirm and submit to the interpretation of the ordained anointed priest when it can be supported by the final authority of God's word. Notice, you're only doing it when it can be supported. It is the authority. This goes right back to that first uh, spy the lie point, right? It's not my inner thoughts or my spiritual beliefs that are true. It's God's word is truth. That's how I discern truth. We haven't now taken that away. And so even though things are being said, uh, it needs to be supported again by the final authority, God's word. But when it is, these men who are anointed and acting in those offices do have authority. Examples of this, Acts 15, verses 1 through 22, there were their... Uh, determining this particular portion of law that Paul's actually speaking to in Romans 10 as well as in the book of Galatians, which is as it relates to what was called the clean laws, things like circumcision, which is what's mentioned there, should the Gentiles, should the non-Jews have to be circumcised? And they conclude that no, that Christ has fulfilled those particular laws. He did. What was also included in the clean laws? Atonement, blood sacrifice. We know that he is our sacrificial lamb. Well, he's also our circumcision, according to Colossians 2. Acts chapter 17, uh, interesting uh, text. Uh, there in that particular text, uh, we were told that the Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians because uh, they checked the scripture to make sure that what Paul was saying was true. That's what you're to do. That's why I say, when, as I go through and I paraphrase some of this stuff, you want to go back and make sure that I'm just not making stuff up. 1 Timothy 5, 17 just says that the elders are to be given double honor, those who teach, those who are anointed in those positions. What does that mean, the double honor? That you listen to them, that they have authority. And in Titus 2, 15, it's explicit. Let no one look down on your authority. Hebrews 13, verse 17 says that we are going to give an account, people like me, about you. Jesus is going to ask me directly about you. And what I think is going to matter to where you spend eternity. First John 2, 18 through 27, I've given you there a, a way to work through what uh, John is uh, saying there. We won't go through it, but uh, it's dealing with uh, whether that's uh, you have an anointing or you have an anointed one. It's an accusative singular there. You can read through the notes, and then uh, if you have more questions about that, uh, feel free to contact me about that but there he's talking about that very thing you have no one else or need for anyone else to teach you these antichrists who have gone into the world you don't want to follow them and by chapter four uh, he brings up the issue again and makes it very clear that uh, whoever these uh, anointed people are these spirit anointed people they're persons in the church god has also mandated the covenant community reject even kill in the old testament any ordained man who teaches lawlessness including going against the law or any person who self-appoints themselves as their own teachers or teachers of others. That's Deuteronomy 13. You know the text. If anyone comes to you, even if he's your best friend, your brother, the son of your mother, etc., etc., you are to show him no pity, but you're to kill him if he comes and he encourages you to, uh, to, to stray or to go after other gods. Acts chapter 11. Interesting text. Uh, Going back up to what I said uh, earlier, 
or, or what I say here in this point, including going outside the law. I think I said against, but going outside the law. Uh, Acts 11, in Acts chapter 10, uh, Peter, who's a Jew, goes to Simeon, or Cornelius's rather, house, and uh, Cornelius is not a Jew. And the first thing that uh, Peter says is, you know that how unlawful it is for me to be here. If it were not for the vision that I was given prior to this, I wouldn't even be here. But now it's clear to me that all those who seek after righteousness are welcome to God. And so he preaches the gospel to this individual, and uh, we're told that they're given the Holy Spirit, the indwelling Spirit, as a sign that, yes, they should be baptized. That's why it, it precedes the actual baptism in that case. Well, what happens when he returns back to Jerusalem? It says that those in Jerusalem take issue with him. Why did they take issue with him? Well, we're told they said, you went to Gentiles. What are they taking issue with? Even though Peter was, uh, many believe, and I believe this too, which is why uh, Paul speaks to Peter in uh, Matthew 16. He specifically says, upon this rock I'll build my church, that Peter was the head of the, uh, the apostles. So he's the head apostle, not the senior pastor of the church, that was James, but he's the head apostle, and yet they take issue with him. Why? Because he had gone, in their mind, outside of the law. If he couldn't square it up, there's a good chance he was getting stoned. And that's why in Acts chapter 11, Peter's like, hey, listen, here's what happened. Right? And it says they all fell silent. We see the same thing again in Acts chapter 15. Uh, the people, after James comes, quotes the scripture. We're told that the church affirms and uh, accepts that. Chapter 20, uh, verse 30, Paul warns uh, the Ephesian elders that uh, men will self-appoint, they will arise, literally they will self-appoint themselves as teacher, and those are the wolves that are to be condemned. This doesn't mean that uh, the guy who's, uh, uh, all of that to say this, the guy who's the, whoever's the anointed, just gets away with whatever. He's very much uh, accountable to the congregation, and likewise, the congregation is accountable to him. Anyone tries to be a teacher and doesn't have that is likewise to be rejected. Uh, Paul in chapter 21, verses 17 through 26, when he goes back to Jerusalem, James comes to him and says, uh, hey, the news out on the streets, paraphrasing of course, is that uh, you're an antinomian. You're against the law and that you're telling our people to not obey the law and so that they will know that there's nothing to this. Go now to the temple with these men. And so again, what's the issue? Hey, you're operating outside the law. This goes back to the Deuteronomy 13 text. Anyone who comes to you teaching lawlessness, it was true under the new, just as it was under the old. 1 Timothy 1.20, we're told Paul there, men who have shipwrecked their souls in this way, teachers, Paul puts them out of the church, they're excommunicated. 2 Timothy chapter 2, he tells us about these men spreading gain green. If they're not put out, this is what will happen in the church. So again, uh, the covenant community, according to God, is to reject ordained men who teach lawlessness. Number six, the covenant community also is to reject anyone in their midst who falsely contemns God's ordained man or their interpretation of God's word as guilty of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and immediately apostate. I know we've been through this, but it's good to hear it again. More importantly, that you see it's coming from God's word. You say, oh, I've never heard this before. Well, praise God, you're hearing it now. This is all coming from God's word. Number 16, Korah's rebellion, uh, is the parallel to Matthew 12 and what happens to Jesus uh, when they accuse him uh, of being a Satan because the very thing, uh, same thing as happens with Korah when he says, we're all holy, who are you over us? And condemns uh, Moses as God's man. 
There again, solo scriptura, we don't need you. And uh, Jesus says, when you do that, you commit blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. This is exactly what happened in number 16, after God had just established this very issue in Numbers 15, the high-handed sin, the unforgivable sin. 1 Corinthians uh, 6, text uh, worth, and I know we've, we've already spent a lot of time, but this is worth looking at. Stay with me. 1 Corinthians 6, uh, very quickly, um, something that uh, I think you'll appreciate. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world, and if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? What is he saying here? The churches are to have their own courts to deal with stuff. We have a problem, we deal with it. Do you not know that we're to judge the angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brothers go to law against another, and that before unbelievers, to have lawsuits at all with one another is instead of defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even you, even your own brothers. And normally what we do is we stop there. But notice that's not where the text stops. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? This is the part I think you can appreciate. Normally, we, 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 we read that, uh, verses 1 through 8, and that's a, that's a different subject altogether. And then when we want to deal with this issue about uh, people who continue to practice sin, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God, and that's verse 9, right? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, the idolaters, the adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor violers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But notice what he's done here. Paul has said anyone who doesn't use the courts... Anyone who goes outside in their judgment of others, and, and in this case, those who are in the body of Christ, which would include most especially her ministers, since Paul says very clearly in 1 Timothy 5 that you're not to bring accusations against them without the proper witnesses. And Paul is saying here, hey, if you do that, don't be deceived. You're just as bad as the sexually immoral. You're just as bad as the idolater, the adulterer, those who practice homosexuality. Notice the context. People do that kind of stuff and they're like, oh, we're, we, no, we're right, we're just going to leave. Paul says, look at this, what you've just done here. You're just as bad as those people. Jesus, 4.6, even Jesus and the apostles were subject to God's mandates regarding the interpretation of his written word. Even Jesus. John 14 through 24, Jesus goes up to the temple. His brothers catch on to this. They're like, no one who's legitimately from God, paraphrasing, of course, and they say, no one who's legitimate of God would stay away. They make themselves known publicly. They knew what the law said. If you're a true teacher, you do it the right way. You do it according to God's established means and methods. And so Jesus goes up and he teaches in the temple openly, and Jesus says, hey, anyone who knows God's law knows, will know that I'm from God and that what I teach comes from God. And so he challenges them to say, look, if, I, if I'm wrong in the way that I'm interpreting God's word, you let me know. He puts himself out there in that way. And he says at the very end of that, therefore, don't judge by appearances, but judge by righteous judgment. 
We see the same thing in 18 when now he's before the high priest and he's being accused and he says, did I not come in the temple and teach openly every day? Even Jesus operated within God's mandate. We see the same thing with Paul in Galatians chapter 2 and verses 1 and 2. He says, I went up to Jerusalem to make sure that my gospel, the gospel that I was preaching, was legit. And he says, I received the right hand of fellowship from the apostles, those in the church. The truth in this lie, the Bible is my only authority, often conceals. I don't want to follow the rules. Just me and my Bible. We'll be okay. I got my gun. I got my Bible. Right? Well, what they're really saying is they're a person whose only authority is self. Going back to that question, uh, who saves you? You say, Jesus saves you, but how, how do you know that you've received it? I've said a prayer. Well, how do you know he's accepted it? Who tells you that? Eventually, you're going to come back to either somebody else or you, right? And that's usually what it is. Well, I do. It's kind of like, you know, filling out the application to Harvard and then going and telling your parents, I got into Harvard before you received the letter, the acceptance letter back. They say, well, how do you know? Did Harvard, I mean, they're the ones that own the property. They're the ones that determine who gets in and who doesn't, not you. And they're appointed officers, not you. You say, no, I do, because I want to go there. That's not how it works. For these people, it is. They claim their authority to be God of Jesus, but in reality, it is self-based, or it is self based on how they choose to interpret or, or understand God's word, which is always in a way that favors what they want to do. It's going back to our sacred cow analogy from last week. They worship a sacred cow they call Jesus that looks exactly like them. In closing then, support from the early church fathers. Just very quickly, why is this important? Well, these are the people that were closest to Jesus, or at least the time of Jesus, which means the chances of them being having strayed is, would be far less than someone today thousands of years removed. This particular individual was a direct disciple of the Apostle John, St. Ignatius. He also, and I sent this out months ago, but some of you remember this, his correspondence with Jesus' mother. Can you imagine? And he was just excited based on the correspondence of meeting her because of all these things he had heard about Jesus and he wanted to ask mom directly. And, and we actually have a response back from Mary uh, to, this, uh, to this individual about how she's going to come with John and that she will speak with him at that time. So this is how close this individual is to the time of Christ, which means he knew the apostles. He knew what they believed. And this individual was a teacher in the church. Here's what he had to say. It is fitting that you should run together in accordance with the will of the bishop. Bishop is the term presbyter and bishop are the terms that are translated in our Bibles as uh, uh, elder or overseer. So he's just using that term, a bishop, which referred to the priest portion of it, the anointed pastor, that you should run together in accordance with the will of the bishop who by God's appointment rules over you. He that refuses to assemble with the church for the judgment of the bishop has condemned himself. Let us be careful then not to set ourselves in opposition to the bishop in order that we may be subject to God. Beloved, be careful to be subject to the bishop and to the presbyters, that means the other elders, for he that is subject to them or to these is subject to Christ who appointed them, but he that is disobedient to them is disobedient to Christ Jesus. He that does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. That's John 3.36. For he who does not... He that does not yield to his superiors is self-confident, quarrelsome, and proud. God resists the proud, and the proud have greatly transgressed. 
The Lord says to his priests, he that hears you hears me, and he that hears me hears the Father that sent me. That's Matthew 10. He who despises you despises me, and he that despises me despises him who sent me. We ought to receive everyone whom the master of the house sends to be over his household as we would do him who sent him. It is manifest, therefore, that we should look upon the bishop even as we look upon the Lord himself. It is becoming, therefore, that you should also be obedient to your bishop and contradict him in nothing, for it is a fearful thing to contradict any such person, for no one does by such conduct deceive him that is visible, but does in reality seek to mock him who is invisible. And every such act has respect not to man but God. To those who indeed talk of the bishop but do all things without him, will not he who is the true and first bishop and only high priest by nature declare, why do you call me Lord and do not do what I say? Matthew 6, or 7 rather. Such persons are dissemblers and hypocrites. End quote. Hugh of St. Victor said this, and I quote, do not attempt to learn by yourself, lest believing yourself introduced to knowledge, you rather be blinded. Right there, don't attempt. That introduction is to be sought from uh, for from men of doctrine and wisdom who may bring you in and open the matter to you as you need it with the authorities of the Holy Fathers and the testimonies of the Scriptures. There's final authority, but their authority also. And finally, Vincent of Lorenz. And I quote, someone will perhaps ask, but the, because the canon of Scripture is complete and sufficient of itself for everything and more sufficient, what need is there to join it with the authority of the church's interpretation? That's what we hear today, right? For this reason, because all do not accept it in one and the same sense, but one understands its words in one way and another in another, so that it seems to be capable as, of as many interpretations as there are interpreters. Therefore, it is very necessary, on account of so great intricacies of such various error, that the rule for the right understanding of the prophets and the apostles should be framed in accordance with the standard of church interpretation. You know... The question we get oftentimes is, uh, where are there any other churches like you? And here's the, here's the response I think you should give. At one time, there were a lot of churches like us. And we got the proof for it. I don't know, and I don't really care. But I do know at one time, there were a lot of churches like us. And we should be proud to be in a church that has roots all the way back to the time of Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you love us. You love us because there are people still being saved today. We're those people. We believe that. And Lord, if we be in the last days, if this is it, I pray that uh, uh, through this kind of teaching that we've heard here today, because we're going to, we're going to catch flack for this kind of stuff, we know it. I pray that uh, you would equip us with it. Give us hearts to go back and to learn this, to know this, so that we can defend what it is that we believe, so that we can again be the salt and light that you've called us to be. Make it so we pray in Jesus our King's name. Amen.